Welcome to the Hit Factor Podcast Show with Jason, Jeremy, and Jeff. This is episode 69. Today we have me, Nils Jonasson, talking about Canik and how awesome they are. <laughs> Come on, guys. Good. Awesome. How you doing, man? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. You bet. So um, I, I don't imagine too many people, at least in the U.S., don't know who you are. We're going to give a quick rundown. We do have some international listeners. Uh, we expect them to probably know who you are as well. But we, you know, we have the option of either saying, hey, Niels, tell us who you are and all that stuff, which we may ask you some questions, but I, I'm going to try an introduction uh, of you. First off, I'm going to say that I was looking up uh, your stats uh, last night and I did not realize. So I've only been shooting this sport for about four years. This is this will be my fifth year starting. Really? Yeah. So I want to circle back to that later, but all right. Okay. I did not realize you have been so dominant in this sport. Jeremy had made a comment about it a while back, and I was looking at, I think your first win was in 2010, first national title, limited? The, yeah, the USPSA limited national championship. It was the, the second national championship I ever competed in, but it was five years after my first. Okay. So, Nils uh, is a shooter from, you're from Phoenix, Arizona? Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, so Nils shoots uh, USPSA, shoots Ipsic. Shoots three gun, shoots IDPA, shoots steel challenge. Did I forget anything? Mm, I haven't ventured into cowboy action or mounted shooting yet. So yeah, that's about it. <laughs> okay. Um, you've won. I know you've won IPSC. You've won a world championship in IPSC. You've won uh, like 15, 10 to 15 titles in USPSA. IDPA, you, you're, you're, a, you're a national champion in, correct? I am. I actually, oh. so the first IDPA nationals I ever shot and I actually got disqualified from. Um, so, really? so after, after I won the match and obviously I didn't technically win cause I didn't finish right technically, but I finished the competition and the magwa I had in my 2011 at the time was just a hair too wide and the box on the production or the, the IDPA box wouldn't close. And I was shooting the ES, the enhanced service pistol division. Um, so I won and then I just disqualified and had no score for the match. <laughs> oh my God. Super. Super disappointing, super heartbreaking, but I did come back next year and win it. And then that same year or the year after, I also won the IDPA Indoor National Championship, both in the Enhanced Service Pistol Division. Um, and then the following year, this was like a big IDPA kick for me at the time for some reason. Right. Uh, the following year, um, there was no nationals. And in place of it, there was the, the IDPA World Championship, uh, which I was also able to win in the ESP division. So since we're talking about this, was that, was that, uh, what years were those? Uh, I don't know exactly. Was that the years of Vogel and Savigny and so, yeah, so Vogel, but not Savigny. So I think Savigny had just kind of stepped out of IDPA. He was still shooting USPSA, but he was kind of done with IDPA, uh, for whatever reason. I think he had either a disagreement with the way they did scoring or whatever it was, but Vogel was still doing it, but he shot, uh, SSP, mm -hmm. which is stock service pistol. Um, and at the time he was, and he still is a better IDPA shooter than I am. Um, cause that's his thing. Like that's, yeah. he's like monomaniacally good at IDPA. Like, I don't know anybody that's been as dominant in one particular discipline with the exception of maybe Eric Rafael in Ipsic, um, as Bob Vogel. Like he's really, really good at IDPA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so you shot a lot of things. You've won a lot of national championships and world championships. So, it's fair to say you're pretty good. <laughs> I've, I've put a lot of <laughs> you don't work have to be into modest. it. Um, a lot of people think that you know, I shoot good because I shoot a bunch of rounds. 
And honestly, right now with the num- the amount and the cost of uh, components and the, in- the unavailability of primers and, and projectiles and stuff like that, like that even affects me. So I'm having to to pull back and save just in case I can't get any more and I can, you know, weather the storm. And because quite frankly, right now shooting is my job. And if I'm not able to shoot, then what am I going to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, I, but my point is, I mean, I started shooting in 2002 when I was 12 years old. So I've been com- shooting competitions as like a weekly thing and practicing in between for the last 19 years. So it's not something that happened overnight. It's something that I put a lot of time and energy into. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you said you started in 2002. Uh, when did you realize this was something you're going to be good at? Uh, I actually realized I was going to be good or I thought I was going to be good at it before I started. Um, Hey, that's, that's good. (laughs) So I, I was really good at video games and stuff like that. And like, that's what I enjoyed. But my dad found this local match at our club, Rio Salado, which we didn't know was the shooting mecca of the world with the best shooters ever this year on a weekly basis. But we stumbled across Tuesday night steel, which they hold every single Tuesday night. So it's four times a month. And they've regularly got some of the best shooters and like my first match. So my dad shot that match for about a month and a half and I watched, so I didn't compete and we were driving home from the range one day and I'm like, Hey, like, is it a game? Like I, he's like, no, it's a sport. It's a blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but like, is it a game? (laughs) Stop. He's like, yeah, I guess. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm good. I'm really good at games. So I, I think I'll be good at this. And then the next week I shot and (laughs) Like that, like 19 years later, I still shoot that local match, albeit less frequently just because I'm so busy with other stuff. But uh, every once in a while, the same top level shooters will come out too. Like it's a treat to see when Rob Latham comes out or Angus Hobdell or any of the other guys that were there when I started 19 years ago. And I watched and I learned from and kind of through osmosis, mimic them and like turn their style into mine in some way. Like it was hugely beneficial for my development as a shooter to be around people of that caliber. Not very many people are lucky enough to have those people to see that on a weekly basis. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Okay. So, uh, along those lines, is it awesome or how many people do you see that that actually, uh, maybe be a deterrent to, they come out and they see those guys shoot. I can only imagine you're coming out and you're struggling. You've been practicing and you see Rob Latham shoot. And you're like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, you come up to the, well, Cause I can think about it back when I was 12 years old. So my, the first, after I had that fifth, you're like, Oh yeah, I'll be good at, it cause I'm good at games. So I'll be good at that. My first stage, it should have taken me like seven seconds, took me 97 seconds to shoot or sorry, 87 seconds to shoot. And my dad was following behind me, picking up my magazines from my, from, from his Colt gold cut 45 shooting full power ammo <laughs> with seven round magazines. All right. So <laughs> I can't, I'm slow as hell. I can't hit the target. I'm missing all over the place. I start with six mags on my belt. and My dad's reloading them as I go and stuffing them back in my mag pouches. And like, I, sh- I finished my first stage barely. And I probably shot 200 rounds and I should have been, you know, 20. <laughs> oh it was just horrible. So like I've come a long way, at, but from the, the point of view of being around people that are that good. Yeah. It can be really intimidating because you know who they are. If you've been around the sport, because like you see them online and on YouTube or you watch shooter ready where, which was the first time I had ever actually been exposed to 
competitive shooting was Rob Latham's shooter ready VHS at the time. <laughs> and just what he did with a handgun seemingly without even thinking about it was just ridiculously awesome. And I always looked at it as an opportunity to learn from somebody who is so much better than me. Um, in the sense of like, he's able to do that. How is he able to do that? How can I do it too? Rather than a, a deterrent or an intimidation thing. And obviously there's still that aspect of it because you want to perform at your highest level. And like, that's an extra stressor, almost like shooting on the super squad and major match. But at the same time, it's good for you because it, it allows you to grow as a shooter. And ultimately that's all we're trying to do. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple questions out of that. Did uh did like your relationship with Rob was it was there any sort of mentorship there? Or was it really more just you are around them shooting matches like with DDC you as like you kind of obviously you probably got good pretty quick. It's like, "Oh, this kid's a threat. I don't want him to get good. He's going to take and win all my titles." <laughs> so, yes and no. Uh Robbie was always very kind and friendly to me. Uh and he's still a really good friend of mine to this day, and we weren't always as close as we are now. But I feel like I've grown to a point where I understand what I do a lot better and I can relate to what Robbie knew back then. Yeah. So because we've got that extra connection and like the extra mutual understanding of what we're actually doing, not just thinking we know what we're doing, um, like we're able to kind of relate to each other on a better level now, but that's only a very recent thing. Yeah. So then, I mean, you you grew up in the sport, shooting around icons of the sport, basically. So then your first experience on the Super Squad, was it just like, well, hey, this is basically a Tuesday night steel match? No, no, not at all. Are you kidding? Super Squad at Nationals? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's a lot, of the sa- a lot of the same shooters, though, you know? So, so uh, just a little bit of history. So I started shooting in 2002 in, with Single Stack. And the the first gun that I transitioned to away from that was a, a double stack nine millimeter CZ seventy five B. So the down sweat beaver tail, like not modern at all. And this was only like what two thousand three, two thousand four, or something like that. Um, so that was my first taste of a gun that held more bullets and had way less recoil, which in theory would be great. But all I did initially was uh, shoot faster and less accurately because now I've got bullets to miss. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. so it, it was a learning experience just like anything. Uh, but it was good for me to just try different things. And in 2005 um, was the first USPSA national championship I shot. And it was in Barrie, Illinois. And it was a, a, a complete national. So every single division. And I, for whatever reason, was shooting revolver at the time. <laughs> so uh, I have no like major match experience in that way. And I didn't shoot on the super squad. At least I don't think I did. It was a long time ago. I'm pretty sure I didn't shoot on the super squad. I think I remember that. And I remember like I shot really well for me. And I finished, I, I want to say I was the first person to be within 10% of Jerry Micklick in revolver division for like, as long as anybody can remember, like I didn't win. He, he kicked my butt, but, uh, I think it was at like 92% or 93%. So for me, it was awesome. Even yeah. though I didn't win, like it was an accomplishment for my yeah. first nationals. I mean, that's people would kill for that opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anywhere in 90 percentile of Jerry, Jerry with a revolver is like, 
uh, okay, that's awesome. And this and this was Jerry when he was Jerry. Like, yeah, he was right. hardcore, all all into revolver. He wasn't shooting three gun. He wasn't shooting any of his other stuff. He wasn't shooting carry optics. He was revolver, hundred percent. So like nobody else had a chance. And like I thought it was really cool that I was able to come that close, even though I didn't beat him. It was still an achievement for me. Yeah. So speaking of your you know your wins uh, at the national level, uh, how hard was it to win that first one? So the first one was actually not the easiest one, but one of the easiest ones for me to win. Okay, because that was our next. That was going to be the next question. Yeah, I mean, is it, did you find it harder to repeat it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the first nationals I shot that I won, so 2010 limited nationals. Um, I had just talked McLaren Custom Guns into building me one of his 40 cal limited guns because I loved looking at his guns online. They're super cool. I have shot some and they had shot awesome. And, and I wouldn't have even gone to limited nationals that year. if I didn't have a gun that I felt like I could compete with and win. And I was this dumb kid like, Hey Matt, like, could you build me one of those guns that's worth like $3,000 at the time? <laughs> and I'm like, I could, with that, I could, I could win the nationals. And like, you believe this silly little 20 year old kid and built me a gun and I went to the Nationals, which was in Vegas uh, in 2010, and ended up actually winning, <laughs> which was a big, not a surprise, like, but I didn't, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to win, that kind of thing. Like, I just shot my match, and since I wasn't on the super squad, I didn't, I didn't experience that extra level, that X-factor level of stress that's associated with the highest, like, if, so if you shoot your best and your competition shoots your best and they still beat you, like that's really hard to swallow, right? It it can be hard for people to deal with and then go shoot the next stage with, you know, the, to the maximum, to their best ability, right? Because that sort of thing will get in your head and it'll be more of a detractor than the benefit of the super squad, which there is a benefit to being on the super squad, but you need to be able to control your excitement, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I've not been on the super squad so yet, but... um so I'll, I'll I'll figure that out next year. So Jason, I got I got a question to ask you. Okay. So when you um, came within what two three percent of Max Michelle, you're very kind. It was a little bit more than that, but yeah. Right. So right, when when you made a grandmaster score against Max Michelle shooting his wig whiz bang uh, German USA gun, won't won't say their name because <laughs> wouldn't want to do that. Shooting that gun. What made you, one, I guess, choose the Canik? Like, why would you shoot a Canik over something more expensive? And what was going through your mind when you shot such a, a at a high level, a high performance at a national championship? I'll, I'll answer this as best I can. I don't, I don't hope it, hope it doesn't sound that I'm being, um, I don't know, whatever. Um, but uh, so the year before prior, I guess it was 2019, I shot a Glock all year. Uh, in the four years I, I shot, I've, I've, been uh, infamous or notorious, I don't know what the right word is, uh, in my area uh, for switching divisions and guns within about a 90-day period. Uh, you know, I'll do one. So 2019 was the first year I really – I actually gave early 2019 open – open. Um, I tried to go open for a while and it didn't work out. The gear, it, I got mad. So I just said, carry optics, I'm doing that. I picked up a Glock 34. I had one, and so I just rocked with that. Um, I had a some – this was my first Nationals, and I had some – couple mental errors that cost me uh they cost me they cost me from finishing 90 percent 
Wow. But that's on me. That's on me, right? And um, so I like to play that what if sometimes. But, you know, just just to see, not to think, you know, it would have mattered. But uh, anyways, so I would decided in the offseason I was going to switch guns. So I basically got all the guns that there were, um, all the options available, and I just started shooting them. Well, I had shot a Canik probably when I first got started in the in, in shooting. Um, the Canik had just kind of come out, and I shot. I was like, wow, that's got a really nice trigger. But I didn't, to be honest with you, I kind of didn't give it a second thought. And then you were shooting it and did as well as you did. So I was like, I got to give that a try. So I got one and put the Freedom Smith trigger in it. And kind of once I did that, it was pretty much over. Uh, it just, the, the, the gun just uh, worked really well for me. And um, I shoot with Jeff monthly and a couple times a month sometimes. And it, it, <laughs> it was a combination of the right gun, uh, the right time, the right mindset. And it was, it worked really well for me. So that's um, really exciting. Yeah. I'm happy. I was happy. And they, so I was a little jealous because you finished higher at nationals than I did. <laughs> I don't think I did, but go ahead. I appreciate it. Literally, literally, literally you finished better in carry optics against some really good competition place wise. I think our percentage was a little about the same. Yeah. But more people beat me in production for the first match uh, than beat you in carry optics. So I was a little jealous. I'm like, man, maybe I should get him a can and put a jersey on him. <laughs> Well, I do like the gun. I really do. I, I've gotten a lot of people. The thing I like about the gun the most is, um, so in my area, I love to take out people that are new to shooting. And this is not about me, so I'm going to do this really quick and get off this, get back on you. But um, the, the, the gun is so easy to shoot. The competition, the gun, the, the, the main competitor for that gun are one of them. It's a really good gun. It's a great gun. It's got a really good reputation, but a lot of people always put it down and say it's not accurate. Well, it's not that it's not accurate. It's just more complicated or it's less forgiving. I use that from like my archery days growing up when I would shoot archery. Uh, the Canik is just super, super forgiving. So I've even got Jeff shooting one. Maybe. Very cool. No, so, I mean, that's super. Sorry, Jeff. I didn't mean to dime you out. <laughs> it's super cool that, I mean, not only did you choose it over another platform because it, it worked better for you. Um, but that you're also running it and like you talk so highly about it. And, um, I can attest, like, I don't, I'm pretty sure I know, like, I don't think Canic or Century pays you to say anything like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but no, they don't. So, all right. I just wanted to clarify, cause sometimes yeah. when I go out to a match, I mean, people think I only shoot the gun because, you know, they're paying me money and sometimes as much as many times as you tell somebody something, they don't really hear what you're saying. And some, somebody like you who's just using it because you've tried a bunch of other stuff and you chose this because it was the best thing for you. Um, it, even though I, you know, perform really, really high, like a uh, uh, high, um, perform well with it across the board, regardless of the kind of match I'm shooting or the, the level of competition I'm shooting against. I always perform very, very high. I may not always win, but, but you're in the running. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I always, I'm always in a position to do very well in a match. Um, but sometimes, you know, people come up and they'll, they'll ask like, so what have you done to it? Right. Like what, what did they do special just for you to be right. more accurate or easier to shoot? I'm like, <laughs> like you could literally buy this gun off the shelf. And at the time I had some mods on it, uh, like the freedom Smith pro trigger that I think you're running, yeah, uh, which is a great trigger. Uh, but the funny thing is it doesn't actually change the trigger. It just changes the pre-travel leading up to the break of the trigger. Right. So it 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 makes you shoot the gun a little bit faster, 
but not necessarily more accurately because the factory trigger is no joke. It's hands down the best striker fired is what we normally say, but I would say the best production style gun trigger on the market period. And the fact that it's so much less expensive than yes. any of the competitors, like it's just it all, not even value because the value um, hints at like it being cheap and it's not cheap. It's not. Yeah. It's a, a quality gun and Canik cares about the customer enough to offer the highest quality gun they could make at a reasonable price because they're not greedy. So, yes, if, if you were to go back and listen to I don't I couldn't give you the number of episodes, but I've talked about the gun a, a, a few times. And I've made the claim um, that it's the best trigger out there. And it's the only thing that can rival it is a 1911. Mm-hmm. And a 1911 is probably going to have it beat. Uh, it's just a 1911 is hard to beat, right? It's probably the best trigger system out there. But as far as any kind of production gun goes, this triggers. And I've let people that work for other companies. I've let people that shoot other guns. I've let national and world champions dry fire and shoot this gun. And I, I really just want to watch their face when they pull the trigger the first few times. Because the first time, it's like, hold, they, they can't really kind of hold it back. They're like, oh. And then 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 they kind of have to admit that, like, yeah, it's a pretty good trigger. Like, that's really, yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, it's really good. So. No, it's it's pretty exciting. And they really do care about, like, maintaining a really high quality of the gun. And like anything, I mean, sometimes I mean, you make, you know, 200,000 guns and, and ship them out. I mean, chances are something's going to be wrong with something just like Ford is going to have a recall or Tesla or whoever. But anytime there's an issue, they're on it as far as support of the customers. And they're also constantly improving and working on ways to make the guns better. So they're never locked in one thing. They never think they're, you know, already done advancing. That's good. Hmm, That's pretty cool. Anyone have any comments on that? Well, so I think this, I mean, I think Nils is kind of very interesting because, you know, he talked about, yeah, that now that he's paid by them, like people don't want to listen to his, don't necessarily believe what he's saying, right? Like he's just, it's just a paid ad, right? Whereas it's like, well, I mean, you you don't really have to listen. You can just look at his results. But I mean, if, if I was to, if I was to describe Nils, like, like Nils's history or whatever, I think the greatest shooter with an iron-sided major gun in USPSA's history. Oh, me? No, absolutely not. I totally well, disagree. Uh, maybe one maybe one day, and I hope to be one day, like, I'll be able to say that about myself, but right now, by far and away, Rob Latham is that person. Okay, okay. Okay, well, uh, Rob Latham aside, I mean, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's the, he's the GOAT. Uh, Rob Latham for aside. Sure. But for if, sure. But if, I, but if I said that, would you feel like okay, you're you're overselling me, or or am I underselling you? Whenever I say iron-sided major guy with a major gun, uh, I would say at least in the past, iron sights in general. Yeah, yeah. My my best results have definitely be with major guns, um, and that's because I really like to go fast, and dropping points in minor really sucks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so major power factors, I think, more fun to shoot just because you can push your speed a little bit more. And absorb a Charlie here or there, and it's not the end of the world. Where with production, you're 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 trapped in a world where you have to shoot alphas, or you're going to kill your score. Basically, kind of like not as bad as IDPA, but where IDPA you have to shoot just so slow because not that that's a bad thing, but you have to shoot more controlled because you have to get zero down because one shot outside the zero is a whole second added to your score. So the penalty yeah. for failing to perform and failing to hit that target is so great spending an extra 10 or 
you know, five hundredths or tenths of a second to make sure you make the hit is worth it. But that's also more concentration. And it's also uh, it takes a little bit more time to ensure that you get that hit. So major USPSA is the way to go. <laughs> yeah. So making that transition from, you know, basically dominating the world of major uh, and then going to minor guns and even, and with production, minor capacity, minor capacity, you were, you were doing pretty well with a single stack too, usually. Um, but so how has, like, what have you done to try to make that transition to, like, I mean, has that been a change in training, or just a change in mindset uh, to try to get to where you are shooting more points and not just going fast? Yeah. So usually if I shoot a lot of limited uh, in the major power factor and then I immediately switch to minor, my first usually either match or a couple of stages in a major match are uh, really, really bad because I dropped so many points. Like I forget the importance of an alpha. Uh, and that's just something I'm working on. Um, I, like we can always improve. And that's one of the things I do struggle with, especially if I'm going back and forth, major, minor. But this last year, I shot minor only. So I never had that jump back and forth. And I just had to deal with the the difference in focus you need when you're running in, uh, like a red dot optic compared to iron sight. So that's been the biggest thing I've had to deal with this last year in 2020, aside from, you know, COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's been the biggest challenge for me is that difference between iron sights and the red dot. So for you, it's is it's just a mentality thing. Like, just I just need to be more focused and dialed in on on making sure I'm hitting ace. Uh, no. Well, so to for shooting minor or yeah, yeah, when you're shooting minor or with a particular style of sight. Uh, let's say minor with irons. Okay, so yeah, it's literally a mindset thing where you assign a certain penalty for a Charlie, right? So you go through a course of fire and it's a ten hit factor stage, right? which for major would be super fast or that would give you the ability to drop one Charlie uh, and equate it to a 10th of a second. Right. Yeah. So 10 hit factor, you're shooting 10 shots or 10 points a second. So if you drop one point, you're dropping a 10th of a second it is a pretty easy way to, and it's a simplified way, but it's a quick way to explain hit factor scoring. Yeah. The same hit factor, assuming you shoot all A's, starts out at 10 hit factor if you don't drop any points. The second you drop that first point, instead of dropping a tenth of a second, you drop two tenths of a second. So if you drop 10 Charlies, that's two whole seconds. And you can drop 10 Charlies hella fast on like a field course where the targets, there are a bunch of partial targets like 10 to 18 yards, something like that, where they're not really hard shots, but you're being super cautious and not wanting a penalty. Yeah. By and then you you aim outside of the alpha and you end up with two Charlie and now you're four points down on that target and that's almost a whole second down if it's to 10 hit factor stage. And a 10 hit factor stage is really high for a production gun. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to give uh you have to give your points down a, a time value, I feel like. I've never thought of it that way. I've always been thinking just 91, 90 to 93% is what I want. Which, how do you do that, right? No, no, because I just think overall. Um, I don't think of what you're saying, and I also don't think of, well, that target's okay. if I, I started at the end of this last year going, it's okay if I have a Charlie on that target. It's a hard target, or I want to be moving on that target. I'll accept a Charlie. Even then, I don't think about that, because then that starts, that'll turn into two Charlies. Sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> and a Charlie Delta. So I know. Oh yeah. Well, so the funny thing is a Delta sounds really bad because it's only one point instead of five, but two Charlies is the same as a Delta, right? So yeah. shooting minor. All right. So one, one Charlie is two points, two Charlies double that four. That's the same as a Delta. So if you run through a course and you shoot two Charlie on a target that you should have shot two Alpha on, that would be like you shot an Alpha Delta. So you've got to you've got to be honest with yourself and really assign a point value or a time value to each point you drop to to give yourself an idea of how important each point is. And I think something I struggle with at matches is on the close easy targets. I usually drop more points than on the hard shots because I don't feel like I need to concentrate on them. And as a result, a target that's you know five yards away, which I should shoot two alpha all day long, I'll have either an alpha Charlie or two Charlie. And if it's a five hit factor stage, that's, you know, a second or more that I could have just aimed and broken even. So if I just concentrated just a fraction of a second, like maybe a tenth of a second, I could have had two A's all day long and done a lot better on that course of fire. So would you say that from what you just said that the the rule of thumb, everything's a rule until it's not, right? There's a rule for everything until it doesn't apply. Uh, would you say that that um, uh, um, the close, easy targets, you have to really go for the alphas because everybody's going to get more alphas on the close, easy targets. So if you drop points on the close, easy ones, you're kind of putting yourself behind the curve because everybody should have gotten those alphas. Or is it just get them, get out of there faster and then everybody's going to drop more hits on the harder targets. So if you're just a little bit disciplined, see, that's the, that's the, the, that's where I need to improve on and grow the, 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 the strategy. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. So think of it this way. Um, if you can shoot two alpha in the same time that it took the other person to shoot two Charlie, you're better off, right? Definitely. So he would have to shoot literally a second faster, maybe not a second, but like to give you an idea, he would have to shoot, say, half a second or a second faster to absorb that two Charlie or even a one Charlie against you shooting just a little bit more controlled, even though it's an easy target and maybe you slow down a little bit. But now he has to run it faster in order to make up for it. And that's not, once you give up time, you can't get it back. Right. And points are just another version of time. Yeah, I kind of wonder if this is uh, if this is another Rob Latham influence because the the first time I had somebody this is an interesting story the first time I had uh, somebody speak to it in these terms like the points down or is that is it was a 2017 World Shoot in France I'd never shot with Rob before and we get to the stage which everybody if anybody shot the match still remember it had like I don't I don't remember how far we were shooting away but it was at least 50 yards. Uh, like you started off, you started and you had to shoot like two targets at 50 yards and you had a bunch of like partials at 20 yards, like the whole stage, the hit factors were down in like the, for single stack, like in the fours, maybe fives. I think, I think they were lower than that. I think they were like twos or threes hit factor. I remember that stage. Cause I, I remember that stage vividly, um, because Eric or kicked my ass at that match <laughs> <laughs> along with everybody else. I know, but I, I'm pretty sure I finished third but i could be wrong it's, that's been a while but I, I remember i didn't shoot very well at the match um and part of that was because i wasn't able to qualify for the team for various reasons um so i went there as an individual 
and I wasn't able to shoot on the super squad. So I wasn't able to benefit from that, um, that, that X factor that yeah. the, the super squad has. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if you can keep yourself composed and just shoot your match can be a huge benefit. But if you let it like get to you and you're like, Oh my God, that's, you know, Travis Tomasi, he's the nicest guy ever and he's shooting amazing. Like what a jerk. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you can get distracted by their performance and how good they are, and that'll negatively impact your performance. So you have to be careful, or at least aware of what that does to you. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I shot the stage, and I was shooting single stag minor, so I had a, had a plan that basically, I, I started to start with, I think I started with 10, uh, uh, with 10 rounds in my first, my first mag with, you know, two targets at four, 40 to 50 yards and a couple more partials. And uh-huh. so I ended up tagging. I had a Mike no shoot on a target and I, I finished the stage like, okay, one Mike no shoes. Like, okay, I kind of, kind of maybe survived the stage. Like, okay, like that's not terrible. And right. my time was, my time was okay. Not that bad. And I get back and Rob looks at my, he looks at my score sheets. We're teammates at this point. And this is the first day. This is the first day of the world shoot too. So like, this is before he stroked out, right? Yes, yes. This is before he, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is before he had to go to a hospital. Poor, poor. I'm so glad, glad he's okay. Uh, yeah, we were super worried about him when that happened. But yeah, the heat stroke and like the other he, the health stuff he was dealing with. I'm really glad he's better now. But yeah, we were really worried about him. Yeah, it was that was scary. Uh, and I don't think he ever wants to go to a French hospital again. <laughs> uh, I think he's happy with American medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he looked at my he looked at my sheet and he's like, "Dang, that cost you six seconds." The Mike no shoot. He's like, "That cost you six seconds." Yep. And I and I was like, "There's no way." And right. I started it's impossible. I started doing the time because because when I shot it, I called it as a questionable shot. It was like 35 yards with a partial, but I was like, "I don't want to make it up because I don't want to do a standing load." Yeah. And then, but then if I had done the math on the hit factors ahead of time on what a Mike no shoot was actually worth time wise, yep. then yeah, it would have definitely been worth even just doing a standing load there for one shot. Oh would yeah. Have been way ahead of time. And so mm-hmm. like that, I, I mean, I quite wonder if like part of how you think about that is, is maybe just haven't been around Rob and he probably, I'm sure he just talked about that all the time in, in local matches and stuff. If y'all shot together much, uh, I don't know, but that is interesting. Yeah. So he, so I've never taken a class of Robbie's, which, Looking back, I kind of regret because I feel like he's really good at conveying really important information, like in a way people can understand. Like, I feel like I would have gotten a lot out of it and I kind of kicking myself that I didn't because I would be, I'd be a lot better if I had taken a Robbie class, maybe in 2010, after I, after I won limited nationals, if I had taken a class then, I feel like I would have been in a really good spot to really kickstart my shooting in a way where you know, I could build on what I did in 2010 rather than fall back and have to build myself back up. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess hindsight's 2020. Always. What does Sasquatch say? You always make the right decision after you make the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, since we're kind of on this topic, um, you know, you're talking about, uh, being on the super squad and seeing all those guys, um, go out and just light it on fire. You probably also see them have a bad stage every once in a while, not near as much as most people, but uh, how do you deal with match pressure? Yeah, it, 
especially on the super squad. And that's really a unique thing just because the, the stressors are so high. Um, most people, at least early on, aren't going to get that opportunity. So they're not shooting with somebody that's that high a level. So they don't have, they don't have that. So they don't get the benefit of seeing how they shot it and their thought process behind it, but they're still at the nationals and this is the big game. And they put more pressure on themselves because they think they're somehow supposed to shoot better at a nationals than they did in practice. So they, they push past what they practiced just because they feel they need to. And that's not the right mentality to have. What you need to do is you use practice to figure out what you're capable of at your like max efficiency. And then you also use practice to push what your max efficiency is, right? So you, yeah. you, do, you don't want to push to failure at a match, right? You want to push to failure in practice to build your skill set and increase. Just like when you're working out, like you, you want to you know, push to failure and pass failure if you can to you know, build your body. Same thing in practice. But then also understand what your capabilities are if you want to not cruise through a match, but maintain a high level of efficiency, but without the risk of barrier. And Ben Stoger, uh, he does that really well uh, in that he he kind of sizes up his opponents and he does what he needs to in order to beat them, right? So yep. if they make a mistake, he's able to capitalize on it more often than not. and He's always also in a position to take advantage of it, right? So he's not going to make the big mistake that puts him down 100 points because you can't you can't make the points you lose back up. You can only like push somewhere else to take someone else's points away. So once you give them up, you've lost them. Yeah. So if you if you can maintain a real high level proficiency, maybe not your peak, but near your peak, like, and people will say like 95, right. 98. There's not a, there's not a solid mm-hmm. percentage. It's whatever whatever you need to do in order to make sure you perform at a high level, but a consistent level yeah. at a major match is what you want to do. And I think that's why people fail is because they push past what they, their bodies are capable of doing just because it's the big game. And now is my time to perform. So buzzer goes off, buzzer goes off, adrenaline dump hits. They, right. you know, there's, a, I think everybody goes through the phase when they, uh, they first started shooting, uh, especially like their first match, the, the adrenaline hits them so hard that, they get done shooting and it's like, I don't even know what just happened. Like, I don't recall anything, right? There's that infancy stage of it. And then there's the, once you get a little bit better, you're like, you're, you're kind of just sitting back uh, observing this train wreck in progress. Um, But, but, but what I would say to people is, uh, and I think what maybe you're saying is, is when it, when it happens, it's the zone, right? You're in the zone. They say that. Uh, And and when it, when it's done like this year at nationals and this year in general, uh, I was really had a good success rate at shooting a stage going, yeah, I could have done that faster and I could have tried harder, but that was pretty, that was about as good as I could have ran that stage in control. But you still, but you still won the stage and beat the next shooter who was still really good by 5%. Yeah. Maybe not in that exact uh, situation, but like stuff like that will happen where you go through a course of fire and you're not pushing to failure. You're shooting just how you would shoot the stage. And as a result, your points are good. Yeah. You don't run the risk of that catastrophic point deduction for a huge mistake. Um, and most mistakes like that aren't, um, they're not because something happened on the stage. It's because you caused something to happen. Like you didn't do something correctly. And that, lo- that made you lost, lose concentration. 
and then you're not able to regain that concentration and it kind of goes downhill. So you start really solid, like you're doing exactly what you should, and then something doesn't go perfect. And instead of just accepting that it didn't go perfect and moving on and continuing with your stage, you're mad that it happened instead of just focusing on what you need to do, which is shoot the stage. Yeah. When I first started shooting, um, I, I Googled or YouTube, you know, USPSA and there was, I don't even know who made this video. Um, and it was basically like five tips, I think to USPSA. And one, one of the tips was, well, there's like one of them was shoot major. <laughs> the other one was and the, and the one that stuck out was, uh, cause this video was a few years old, uh, was get, get a plan. And if you get off your plan, get back on your plan. And that's kind of what you're saying. Don't let that mistake keep stay with you and, and, and basically keep that, that, uh, that stage side rail, get it back on the rails. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it's more of like a, a loss of concentration. Like you're, so when you're shooting well, you're concentrated on what you need to be concentrated on. And when you make a mistake, now you're pulling some concentration away from what you need to be doing. And you're focusing on the mistake you already made when there's literally nothing you can do about it. You might as well just move on. Yes, it happened. Continue with your stage, do what you know you need to do. Okay. Yeah. I like that. So I got a question a little bit along these lines. Uh, yeah. From my, just personal observation, I think this is something that really only the elite shooters are able to do. It may be, I could be wrong. Um, but how much do you throttle up or throttle down like on a specific stage, whether it's a, the stage is a high risk or maybe you're, you're winning a match. And so like, are you able to like say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to throttle it back. I'm going to take any risk out of the stage. I'm just going to shoot A's, even though I might be a little bit slower, I'm leading by a hundred points. So that, or is it more just, no, I'm going to try and hit my optimal speed on every stage irregardless. Um, I think a bull to an extent. Um, if you're, if you're winning a match by a hundred points and you're on your last stage, like you need to make sure that you don't make a mistake to give it away. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think most matches where somebody who's maybe a little inexperienced is shooting against somebody who's more experienced and they're close, that's what loses them the match rather than the other person being better. Uh, it's cause that person's not used to being in a situation where they have the lead and all they have to do is maintain and shoot their match. They feel like they need to continue to push and or shoot better than they were because somehow what they were doing and the reason they're winning a match isn't good enough now that like they're about to win. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't want to, you don't want to give the match away and you need to be aware that that's a possibility of that has a possibility of happening if you let it. Um, so I would say if somebody has got the lead, a significant lead, you still want to shoot at a high level, but you want to make sure any target that has a high level of risk. So say it's a 20 yard zebra target, right? Like if you miss that, that's a mic, two mics. It could be, it, that could be on a large stage that could be a hundred point swing or a 50 point, easily yeah. 50 point swing. So on something like that, you'd want to pay extra attention and make sure even if it means firing four freaking shots at the target you need to hit that target and you can't make it a catastrophic failure mistake yeah so i think that's something you need to be aware of if you're ever in that position yeah so like a good a good for instance 2019 single stack nationals three-day match uh, i was shooting on the super squad and nils was on the super squad for most of the time he had to leave early to go win area two i think but <laughs> The match was like the, in all honesty, the match was over after day two. I mean, it, like Nils was was winning it by. I mean, like it was like every it was Nils, and then everybody else was fighting for second. 
So going into day three, what was your, I mean, one sleeping on a lead like that at nationals, like what's that? Like, like, do you just, do you feel confidence? Just like, I mean, are, are the nerves higher? And then, yeah, did you, how did you feel like you shot? How was your approach to day three on that, on that match? Um, it's a good question. So there was a lot of stuff going on for that match. Cause like you said, I had to leave early to shoot the area two championship. Cause there was so much, there's just matches scheduled on top of matches. And yeah. I was fortunate enough for the area two crowd to, to let me shoot the whole match all day sun or in the morning on Sunday, essentially for the last day of their match. Uh, so I, I'm super thankful for them letting me do that and yeah. nationals for letting me leave a little early. Um, so uh, it was a nice opportunity for, for me to, to win both matches. Yeah. But the fact that I got to shoot both matches was kind of a feat in and of itself. But, uh, as far as nationals went, I just, the uh, for whatever reason, I shot very well at that match. And there were stages where I, I knew I was up and I knew that I could hold back and I decided not to, and just see what happens. And I remember Phil Strader, like I, I was bleeding. I don't remember who's second. Not important. It was probably Rob Latham because he's amazing. I shot a stage and I come off the stage and Phil Strader comes up to me. He's like, Nils, what the hell's wrong with you? I'm like, what? What did I do? I'm like, what? save some points for the rest of us. Like, why you got to beat us up like that, man? I'm apologizing for, for shooting well. I'm like, well. I think I know what stage he was t- he was talking about because there was a stage there. It was day. I'm pretty sure it was day two. It was a super challenging technical stage, and I was actually pretty high up in the order. So I was I shot it like first, second, or third. Yeah, and like nobody on the super squad really had a good plan except for me. And then once I shot it that way, everybody's like, everybody had a good plan after that, right? Yeah, but it was a risky. It was a risky plan. It uh, was because and, and that that's kind of my point where I could have throttled back. But I, I was feeling confident in my shooting and I wasn't like in my own head. Nobody. And since nobody was close and I wasn't freaking out, I just shot. And, yeah. and, and like that stage specifically, I shot really, really well. And that was probably my best stage of the match. He was crushing like Z, like 20 yard zebra targets. And he was shooting like 30 splits. Like it was just like, like everybody else was kind of tanking on that stage. And a couple of people had like a couple good runs. And I think the best run like was a 19 seconds and, and the guy that shot 19 seconds was like, okay, like that was, that was really good. And then Nils went up there and, and shot it in like 17 seconds, like two Charlie's down. And it was just like, ugh, I kind of hate you. <laughs> well, and the far partial was one thing, but I was really proud about was the, uh, the far activator popper that if I missed, I would run dry and like totally yep. suck on the stage. Yeah. Uh, I had, I had a plan in place in case I didn't hit it, but the fact that I hit it, and then basically made all the other guys in the super squad basically go, oh, shit, why are we even here? Uh, yeah. It was like that kind of thing is a super good feeling uh, yeah. to be able to do that, especially <laughs> against people that are as good as they are. Like they're all really good. You're like Phil Strader won the nationals a couple years ago in Pasa. Um, I don't remember if uh, Jacob Hetherington was shooting, but I feel like he was. Uh, Rob Latham obviously is always awesome because he's Rob Latham. And it's just a lot of really good shooters. And to be able to do that, like it's, that's kind of why I do it, you know, to be able to, to prove that I, I can, I don't know, but I'm still trying to be better like everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun to watch. Uh, and it, it was, it was, I mean, being there and, and you're talking about demoralizing people. Yes, it was a bit demoralizing. 
Well, so, and, and don't forget, I fly out that night to shoot, you know, the four and a half hour flight back to Phoenix to shoot the area two match in two and a half hours shooting carry optics with mechanics. So now I've switched from that single stack 40 cal major, which I really didn't practice with. Um, but I do like that gun. Like it's a good shooting gun. And, you know, Matt McLaren used to build my single stacks as well. And that's still the gun I shoot, uh, for, for single stack division. Um, but my focus is definitely, um, minor in either carry optics or production. But I flew out, uh, left Florida back to Arizona and Sunday morning, the person who was winning carry optics was really happy with himself until I finished. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure it was Austin Aries, uh, who's a really good kid, really good shooter. Really good, yeah. And if there was another gentleman, for whatever reason, I'm drawing a blank, but he's also very, very good. And it was either him or Austin who was second and third. And they kind of felt sorry for me because, oh, man, yeah, you shot all in one day. And like it must have been really hard. And I had to be honest. And the fact that they let me shoot through in a way where like I would come up and either join the squad and like use their walk, use their stage brief, join them in their walkthrough and then shoot the stage first. Um, or just walk up in the middle of the stage, you know, do my own brief basically. And then, you know, insert myself into a squad. Like I've literally shot a 13 or 14 stage match in two and a half hours, which sounds bad from the shooter standpoint, but you also have to figure I didn't reset a single target. I didn't tape a single target. I didn't pick up a single piece of steel. And if you were kind of in that groove, it might've just, right. yeah, that actually wouldn't be a bad deal if you were rocking. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, everything's got pros and cons to it. Um, obviously I switched from iron sights shooting single stack to now optics with my Canik, the SFX, um, with the red dot. So there was a little bit of an adjustment process just, for like the site, the focus of the, uh, what I'm looking at when I want to be really precise. Um, and I didn't do it perfectly, but like, as the match went on, like I got better and better and better. Mm -hmm. But since all I had to do was go up to a stage, evaluate how I was going to shoot it most efficiently and then shoot and then immediately leave for the next stage, reload my magazines, do it again. I didn't have the, that exhaustion from spending all day at the range for three days in a row resetting targets for the rest of the squad, like doing what every other shooter has to do. Um, and that should be a factor at these bigger matches. Like I, I don't like it when the, the best shooters shoot through in one day and everyone else has to shoot through it in three and everyone thinks it's a disadvantage to shoot it all in one day, but you have to, you have to compare apples to apples and there are pros to it as well. Yeah. Henning yeah, Walgren sure. made that. He brought, he's, he told me about that a couple uh, weeks ago or well, a couple months ago at area four. And he was like, it's actually an advantage. Mm. Uh, and I was like, no, it can't be because you're shooting 12 stages in one day. And he's like, no, it is. So it, it can absolutely be an advantage and it can be a negative and it'll be a negative if you're just having a bad day and like every stage you shoot is bad one after the other, after the other. Um, so then it could be a negative, but I think for somebody that, that has enough skill, like, like me or like any of the other top guys that would maybe try to shoot through at a major match. Um, Obviously, I appreciate the fact that they let me do it, but I also recognize that it can be an advantage. So I wanted to let Austin and the other gentleman know that you know it wasn't a detriment to me; like it, it almost was a benefit. Um, okay, so we got a couple more questions. I really want to get through. Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, 
we've kind of hit and jumped back and forth on certain things. So I'm just going to start asking questions and, and it, it, these may go back and forth. Uh, you take an off season. What does it look like? Uh, yeah, I take an off season. It, it kind of started a month ago. Uh, so my last major match I shot would have been the area two championship. Before I forget, can I ask a question about that match? Is that the one that fills up in 30 seconds? Yeah, okay. uh, it's one of them. And th- this year it was really a unique situation because the Rio Salado is run by Game and Fish. And so we need to, it's not run by Game and Fish, but um, we need to follow a lot of their rules and we don't want to, we don't want to step on any toes. Okay. So the reason that Rio canceled the area two was because they couldn't accommodate the number of shooters they needed to for like to justify having the match. And they didn't want to risk Game and Fish being like, what are you doing? There are too many people here because of the situations going on. Um, so they kind of like preemptively canceled the match. Uh, and fortunately, uh, another range two hours north of us uh, in Prescott, the Yavapai Recreation League, their local members, and in combination with Leighton Ustazen, who's the Area 2 USPSA uh, Area Director, um, really stepped up and made it a point to get the match on the ground and make it happen no matter what. It, you know, it wasn't perfect. Uh, there are definitely things they could have improved, but they also uh, planned and devised and built and ran a match that like their planning process started a month and a half or so before the match was even like before the match was run. So the fact that we had a match at all was a blessing. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so uh, back to your off season. Yeah, so my off season started pretty much after Area Two, which would have been early November, like the first weekend in November. Um, I had other matches after that, but none of them at like the area regional match level. Um, Rio Salado still did the Desert Classic, um, which is what the Area Two usually piggybacks off of, um, but they had uh, substantially limited capacity, and there's like only ten people for Bay ever. And so there was a much smaller match. And then the week after that, um, also in Arizona, but in, um, kind of like the Northern North Western corner of Arizona, uh, there was the left out of Rio match in Lake Havasu. And that's just like a super fun kind of not a hoser match, but high round count outlaw USPSA style, like 50 round stages are uncommon. And that was my last match of the year. And that would have been like end of November. So like through December, January, and most of February, that's like my off season as far as shooting matches are concerned. But I've got other responsibilities uh, with relation to Canik. Uh, normally, I would go to the SHOT Show in January, but unfortunately, this year's SHOT Show is canceled. But uh, we've got some other stuff going. Obviously, I was in Turkey um, all of last week and some of the week before. So I was there for, I think, 12 or 13 days and uh, just stuff like that. Like uh, my, yeah, so I'll break December, January, February usually is no major matches for me. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the Canic a little bit more. Uh, these guys are probably tired of hearing about it, but um, <laughs> I want to know what people thought when you told, um, I, I'm going to say, I don't know if you talked to Shane Coley, but I, I imagine this conversation, hey, Shane, I'm going to shoot this gun called the Canic. And, right. and it's it's a polymer gun and Sh- Shane shooting Glock was probably like, you're crazy, dude. What's wrong with you? Come shoot a Glock. Well, I, I never talked to Shane about it. But yeah, I know. I was just... Yeah, but, 
but I mean, no, Shane's a good guy and all. Um, but I'm coming for him at the world shoot this year. Like there's no mercy. Oh yeah. Which reminds me somehow I need to convince Eric Raffel not to shoot open, which I'm pretty sure he's going to do. I need to convince him that, uh, limited or standard at the world shoot is the division to shoot. Um, because the people in open aren't at the level the people in standard are, and he needs to shoot against the best shooters, not anybody last. So come on, Eric, shoot standard next year at the world shoot and, uh, bring it on. I dare you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So does that does that mean you're going to be shooting standard at the next world shoot? Yeah, so I'll be shooting standard major. And you want Eric in your division because you want to kick his you butt. You want to beat him, yeah. Uh, well, I want to beat him before he gets too old and the win doesn't mean anything anymore. I want to beat him in his prime. Yeah. yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, And I might not beat him, but you never know. Maybe I You want to try. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So... I thought you were shooting production. Uh, so if I if I was able to do it again and qualify mm. uh, for the match, it would either be in production optics light or production. Uh, but the Canik, as it's set up right now, isn't actually legal for IPSC competition. And the reason for that is the barrel. The only reason for that is the barrel is 0.2 inches longer than yeah. the IPSC rules allow. So I uh, don't. Tech, I mean, we I could shoot the standard SF, but then I wouldn't be able to put an optic on it for carry optics light. And at the same time, you know, it'd be a shorter sight radius. It, was, it wouldn't have been perfect. And I had already qualified for the U.S. standard team. Um, so if I shot that, I, I would have to withdraw from the U.S. team and shoot as an individual. And shooting for the United States at the World Shoot is super important to me at the same time. So I that's something I factor in as well. Cool. Okay. So, but when you told people, I don't know who you talked to in your circle. I mean, you had to be telling somebody and somebody had to have given you kind of, Hey man, that, you know, the heavy guns. And that's really, uh, you hear that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It's the hotness is, you know, the weight limits have gone up. So everybody wants heavy guns. Yeah. And the heavier gun makes the gun feel softer. And if, if the purpose is to have the most, the easiest gun possible to shoot, then a heavy gun is what you want, right? Because it's going to control, it's going to fight the recoil um, because you've got all this non-reciprocating mass holding down your 130 power factor 9 millimeter. I mean, it's not like you're shooting major. So I feel like there's a point of diminishing returns and I feel like the weight limit as it was before at 42, 42, whatever it was before made a lot more sense from a a balance standpoint because you want control over the gun, but at the same time, shooting the gun is only part of it. You also have to move the gun. Yeah. So you have to move the gun from the holster to the target, and you have to move the gun from the target to the target to the target to the target, and then you have to run with the gun. If the gun weighs an extra pound, every single one of those motions takes longer. I don't care how strong you are, an extra pound in your hand is a big deal. So you've got to put it in perspective and realize that. Well, yeah, a heavier gun technically makes the gun shoot softer, quote unquote. It doesn't necessarily improve your performance. I agree. I have to argue with these yahoos on this show all the time about it. Jeff's come around. Yeah. Well, and then uh, not to knock USPSA, and I kind of understand why they did it uh, up to the 59 ounce limit. And it's because, you know, there are certain guns that were already pretty heavy and people were having to spend so much money to modify, yeah. to put like an optic on. So I get why they did it. 
But at the same time, if your gun weighs 59 ounces with a magazine in it, Jesus, I mean, that's a lot of weight. Like, there's no way I could compete it, it, and justify it for minor. Major, maybe, just because right. like the 40 cal is so violent. And in a polymer frame, the 40 cal is definitely not the way to go. Just yeah. like, just like uh, a polymer frame open gun isn't the way to go. I don't care how good your polymer frame open gun is. Like, I'm not trying to make a polymer frame canic open gun as an example like it's just not it's not meant to be i would like to see that yeah <laughs> but that's kind of like and they're cool like i mean they shoot great but it's kind of like you know sticking a, a a square peg in a round hole like it'll work you can pound it in there but it's it's not going to be the best tool for the job so how did you i got a question yeah how did you go from shooting 1911s 2011s like mm-hmm. exclusively to all of a sudden can it how, how was that journey like so at the time i was bouncing around divisions a lot like i always like to bounce around divisions and that's probably to my performance detriment just because i'm having to not relearn but re-remember how to do stuff when i go to a big match because there is like you if you shoot one gun you're a lot more in tune with that gun and if you're bouncing around platforms and especially grip angles so that makes probably the biggest difference like say a 1911 to say a gun out of austria uh it's a massive difference and you can't just change to that platform right but the canic with super nice is it's the same grip angle as a 1911 as you know any of the check guns or something like that uh or even any anybody else except for the austrian gun shares the same grip angle so while there might be a reason to do it, um, you know, it makes it a lot easier to go from platform to platform if you share a similar grip angle, especially if you're shooting an optic, because that's a massive difference. Like the, a difference of a couple of degrees is the difference between the optic being naturally presented in the window and the optic being nowhere near the window. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, how did I go from a, like a, a 1911 style gun to the Canik? Um, when they approached me in 2019 or in 2018, that towards the end of 2018, they're like, Hey, we want to pay you to shoot our gun. Does that interest you? I'm like, yeah, but send me a couple. So I like can figure out if it works. Right. Cause I'd heard of Canic. I had heard of Canic and I knew their triggers were awesome, but I never really shot one. And I wasn't going to shoot a gun that I couldn't perform with. Right. I don't care how much money you pay me. If if I if it's going to hurt my performance, I'm not going to waste my time, right? So right. they send me a couple guns, and it took me about a week and a half, two weeks to kind of evaluate them, see their strengths and weaknesses, if any, and basically decide if that's something I wanted to do. And after that two week time period, uh, I contacted them back and like, all right, let's get going on this. This is going to work. So that's that's how that process started. Cool. Jeremy had this question actually. Um, he, he basically brought up to us. We were talking in the um, a couple of days ago about what we were going to ask you, and he mentioned that you shoot more matches than a lot of people at your level. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> why do you do that? And do you think that do you think is that does that help you? Is that a, is that a benefit to just staying fresh? I don't know that it's fresh, but just staying in that match mode or or what? Yeah, I, I think I overdid it a little bit this year. Um, I saw your schedule on social media and I was blown away by that. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think I overdid it just a little, not, not a ton. Like I really enjoy shooting. Like I go to a match and 
I mean, I get paid to shoot guns. So if I'm complaining about it, I need to kind of reevaluate my life because <laughs> uh, there are plenty of people that would give their left nut to do what I do. And I count myself very fortunate that I, that I get to this opportunity. Um, there are very few people that have it, so I, I can appreciate it. Um, but I do think I overdid it a bit. I like the fact that I shot all eight USPSA area matches, uh, one through eight. Um, I won half of them and I came in second at half of them. So uh, while I like, that's pretty darn good. That's not what I wanted. Um, and yes, I'm factoring in area eight where technically I won, but that's only due to a scoring discrepancy that, uh, at the time and I was unaware of. So, uh, technically if the scores were altered to reflect reality, Mason lane won area eight. And I would send him the trophy, but uh, it's got my name laser engraved on it. So <laughs> you should send it to him anyway. That'd be yeah. awesome. <laughs> so scratch out my name and then magic marker, right, Mason? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had Mason on uh, right before, or like right after, I think that, and and that's what we were wanting to do. We were talking. We we're like, okay, it looks like these two guys are just they're battling back and forth. So we'd like to have both of you guys on. But um, yeah, so you you did you shot a lot of matches. You shot eight of those. You shot nationals. You shot a ton of other ones. It seems like. Yeah, so I, I really enjoy shooting three gun as well, um, and I kind of like three gun just because I'm not very good at it. Like I'm great at the pistol portion of it, but I struggle on like not struggle, but I'm not as good as some of the other guys for like long range rifle and shotgun stuff. So it's it's fun for me to do stuff that I'm not necessarily you know the best at to kind of you know struggle through and push and learn and get better at you know something that I'm not already better at. So when you're, I mean, you're basically going to a, a match like every week and, you know, then you've got travel on outside of that. I mean, you, like you get home and you got like three days in between matches. Probably, I'm assuming that's kind of what it feels like. You're at home for like three days and you're gone for the weekend and then home for three days. Like what does training look like in that? Or is it basically just kind of the matches are keeping you fresh and there's not maybe, maybe not a ton of training going? Uh, yeah, there was, because of everything that was going on in the world, the matches were postponed a lot of them yeah. were postponed so they were right on top of each other yep. uh so there was literally a three-month time period where my wife was not very happy that i was gone every single day and <laughs> didn't get a chance to spend any time at home so it was it was definitely it was it was a stretch uh and that's kind of why i feel like i overdid it a little bit and maybe if they were spaced out like they normally are it would be so bad but um no it's it's tough when it's that fast to turn around to to come home from a match on Sunday or Monday, whenever you do, and then go to the range the very next day and train or practice or whatever you're going to do. And then say it's a big match and you've got one rest day and now you're looking at, you know, Wednesday or Thursday and you're flying out, you know, you put Thursday's your travel day and you're shooting Friday, Saturday, Sunday, only to fly home on Monday. So there's not a lot of time. And unfortunately, Sometimes I'm literally going from match to match to match and I have zero time to do any practice, um, which I'm not a huge fan of. I'd much rather spend some time on the range, just kind of by myself, figuring my stuff out than just competition, competition to, to be at what I would feel is the highest level that I could shoot at. But I mean, traveling from match to match is still, it's still keeping you relatively engaged. Um, so you can, you can still do that fine. Yeah. It seems like jumping match to match like that uh, would sort of 
drain you of your uh, like competitiveness? Is is that a case at all? Like, you are you coming in like, man, I'm confident I'm going to win this match. I've been like, you don't have any preparation, right? You're just like shooting a whole bunch of matches. Yeah, I mean, you you've performed at a high level a day or two before the last major match. I mean, so it's not like you're not you know used to performing at a high level and you know, doing what you do. I do think it's easy to get a little lackadaisical when you shoot a match where you don't have the competition of a larger one. Even if it's an area championship, if you're running a division where um, there aren't any other grandmasters in the division, and it's not that you blow them out of the water, but you're just kind of, there's not anybody that's really there to compete. Or that if, if they shot really well and you shot really well, they could beat you right there's nobody there like that like if if i shoot one of those matches and i shoot anywhere near what i'm capable of like i have no doubt that i win right but then there are matches that there is a much higher level of competition like uh nationals obviously because everyone there is amazing you you have literally five or six people that could win the match and then another five or six people that are going to beat you if you slip up and then another 20 people that are really high level. So nationals is really where it's at in most divisions. There's a lot of competition at the top at area matches. Usually they're only like one, two, three top level shooters, like in like that are equivalent or near equivalent to each other. Uh, kind of like, uh, like JJ and Christian Seiler or like not every match has the best shooters at it, I guess is right. my point. So when I'm shooting against, the best shooters like that forces you to elevate your game. And even if you're tired and drained, like you, you step it up, you've got the X factor and JJ Rakasa, uh, explains it in a, like time to get nervous, right? Like he's using that energy of the nerves to, instead of, you know, be scared of it, like use it as extra energy to like focuses, you know, JJ mm-hmm. hair or whatever he does. Um, uh, but he uses that to, uh, and that's a joke he says, but I think he actually means, you know, use what could be something that would induce stress as something that actually like adds to your energy and adds to your confidence. And JJ is really good at that. And obviously he's an amazing shooter. So. So would you consider yourself somebody that feeds off of competition? Like you're coming in, like that makes you hungry, right? You come in, you want to win or like the opposite. This, this is like Jason's mindset. Is he just going to come in and he's going to shoot his match and right. where he ends up is where he ends up? Like, what what kind of mindset are you? So when I won my first USPSA Nationals, I was, I'm just going to shoot my match and end up where I end up and I happen to win. So, I mean, that was a little lucky on my part and I can appreciate the fact that there was a little luck involved. Um, but now when I go to a match, I feel like the level of competition is so high in most divisions that I shoot. If I just shoot my match, like like Jacob Hetherington is going to kick my butt. Like I like they do things that I can't do, so I can't I can't just cruise or give up. Like Mason Lane and Jacob Hetherington can both draw the gun for a shot faster than I can. It's just a fact, right? They do some kind of super swoop draw thing that I feel like if I do, I'm going <laughs> to drop the gun. <laughs> they do. Like it's, it's really impressive. So literally the buzzer goes off and they fire a shot and they're like three tenths of a second faster than me before I like fire a second shot. I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) So like every, like they're like certain people like that do certain aspects really, really well, but it's not the single aspect that is going to win the match. It's putting everything together 
in an in a repeatable way, right? And and maintaining a high level of execution without giving up points, letting your competitors give up points if they choose to. So this kind of leads me to, to a question I had. I mean, one of the historically one of the best shooters in USPSA's history. Uh, what if you had to contribute that to one factor? Like, what would be like your one thing that has has led to your success in USPSA? And that may be tough to do, but try. No, I I think I can try pretty well. So I'm actually going through. I'm I'm figuring a lot of stuff out. Like personally about myself in the last couple of weeks. Uh, like really recently, um, I've had some really interesting stuff happen to me, and I think I've grown a lot as a person. Um over the last short period of time. So I, I can, I feel like I can better reflect on what I did before and how I feel about what happened, even like I didn't at the time. And now I feel like I could, I understand a little bit better. I think that when I initially started shooting big matches like 2010, I think my enthusiasm for the sport and like a lot of like natural gift and the fact that I was exposed to people like Robbie and Matt McLaren and Angus Hobdell and those really high level people that were around me at a young age, just being there and kicking my butt and showing me that it could be done better played more and a little bit of luck as well. I mean, there's plenty of luck involved in everything that happened to me up till, you know, this last year. Um, and I can appreciate that now where before I would have said, you know, it's hard work and, Blah 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 blah. Um, I I feel now like it was just the fact that I was super enthusiastic and I did it all the time because that's what I love doing. And the fact that I did it all the time was surrounded by those people and got lucky a lot. That's awesome. At some I mean, point, 15, 15 titles, <laughs> whatever titles, like not really luck. That may may not be luck at that point, but <laughs> I. Yeah, maybe. And I'm still figuring out a bunch of stuff. Like I, I feel like next year I'm going to be a better shooter than I was this year. Uh, and I think that's a good, it's healthy to never be happy with where you're at and always want to get better. And that should be everybody's focus, whether it's in shooting or just their life in general. Yeah. So, okay. So then to ask them more specifically, do you feel like you have a, like a skill like that has helped you succeed? Like if, this is what you work on. And this is what you do. Trigger control, recoil control. I don't know. Scoop we, draws. I'm interested to hear what he says because Jeremy and, and the guys, we've talked about your shooting and what we think where you kind of stand apart. And we're, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. And see if it's the same thing. Yeah. So I feel, repeat the question one more time. So I'm not losing it in translation. I mean, like, so as far as like, what do you do from a skill basis that you feel like separates you from the rest of your competition that's helped you like, like you, what skill do you have that's that helped you win all the titles that you've won? Like since you're, you know, three tenths of a second down right off the draw, you gotta make where it, up is it that where is it that you're making that up? That's only something I came to appreciate this last year when I'm on the squad with Jacob and Mason. I'm like, Jesus, like, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't like touch my gun as fast as these guys like shoot their first round. Like, ugh, so annoying. Yeah. Um, no, so I feel I feel like honestly the the enthusiasm I had and how much I enjoyed shooting in general and the fact that I would do it just because I loved doing it and it was second nature to go and do it was the most 
impactful thing that that affected me. And obviously that means that it took a long time because again, before I won my first nationals, I'd been competing in major matches for eight years, 2002 to 2010. Like that's a long time. Yeah. Definitely didn't happen overnight, but it was something I just enjoyed doing. And I would like every chance I got, I would go shoot and, and put rounds down range because I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And a little bit of luck. As far as this particular thing that we we've, we've watched you do, um, and some of the stuff, I think Jeremy was the one that brought it up is, um, transitioning to like harder targets. Like it doesn't seem to maybe slow you down as much as others. Um, is that what you would, what you would think, Jeremy? I mean, I, I mean, from, from what I've witnessed, yeah, Nils shoots partial targets and tough targets better mm-hmm. than anybody else. Yeah. Like, I mean, Pretty like, impressive. so, so like he can, he can go and be aggressive on those targets. So everybody else is basically just trying not to screw up. And like that stage at nationals in 2019, where you just crush everybody, it's just like he just kind of floats through and shoots it like they're open targets almost. Nobody does it like he does on on that. Maybe an Eric Grafell, but nobody nobody in the U.S. Uh, does does that like like Nils does. We're we're trying to elevate the U.S. game so Eric's not as dominant over us. So don't worry. Absolutely. 2021. As long as Eric shoots standard and he shoots against the best competitors at the sport at the match. Well, it sounds like you need to email him because he's not going to be listening to this podcast. I, say, I'm, I'm, I guarantee <laughs> I mean, there's a good chance Eric will hear this. You should really call him out. Wh- whoever hears this podcast on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, make sure you tag Eric Rafael and, and point out the fact that I called him out. Hey, we we will do that. He needs to shoot against the best competitors, not we just will. the fastest division. We will absolutely tag him and put that in the description <laughs> in the in the Instagram. Uh, and, I mean, we'll, we're going to quote you that you you're saying that he needs to shoot standard. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Otherwise, it's a fake title. If he doesn't shoot yeah. standards, it's he a, gets fake a fake title. title. Yep. Exactly. So, no, I'll be disappointed if I go and I win standard and he's not there. Like, it's obviously, it's still, it would be my second IFSC national title, or sorry, IFSC world title, which would be a big deal regardless if Eric was there or not. But if I was able to beat Eric, and I know this would have, like, me saying this will affect him because <laughs> he, for a fact, wants to shoot against the best shooter or yep. the person that thinks they're the best shooter. And right now I, I think that he thinks either JJ Rakaza or Mason, uh, uh, Christian Seiler is the best shooter. And that might be true right now, but I'm going to make it. So in 2021 come December in Thailand, I'm the best shooter. So if he's not shooting against me, he made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Nice. Man, I like it. This is a good call out. I like it. So, and, and maybe I'll suck, but you know what? But Hey, no, but at least you went for it. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm going to tie two questions in what you just said, or I'm going to tie two things together. What you just said and your, um, limited performance this last year. So you basically shot limited and you were fourth place overall shooting your production rig with minor. Now, was it confidence that you, you know, there, there's a lot of things that can go into that. There's some like, well, hey, I'm already at a disadvantage here at scoring, so I'm just going to let it hang out. And if I shoot as good as I can, it's going to be baller. Or did you just – do you have that mindset of uh, that killer instinct that I think we've talked about this and everybody talks about it, the guys at your level uh, have to have. You, I mean, Travis was saying, he's like, you have to know you're going to go in there and you can win it. before. I mean, and sometimes you have to lie to yourself, fake it till you make it, all that. But uh uh, guys at your level have got you, you've proven it to yourself. So, um, how important is that? And did that play any into the this year? So, I think there's some truth to that as far as the fake it till you make it. Um, I think that'll give you, or at least that'll 
help you get there. That'll display that you've got like some like level of confidence, even if you don't. And sometimes like the perception of confidence will give you a little more confidence. Like if you feel like that can help, but I really think that if, if you're super stressed out at a major match, the best thing you can do is just go back to what you knew you can do in practice every single time and do that exact thing at the nationals or at your area championship or at your like state level match, because it's when you try and shoot beyond what you have practiced, just because it's some more, some match that's more important. Now you don't magically get better because you're at the big game. You have to shoot what you practice, shoot what you know, you can just, I, I've always said, and I can't remember who, where I heard this, but uh, train your weakness and race your strength. We've all got a weakness and we all have a strength and we need to make our, our weaknesses stronger. Like we need to practice. That's what we need to practice, right? Yeah. So what we suck at, we need to get better. And what we're very proficient at or do at an extremely high level, that's what we need to lean on in, in major competitions because the chances of us failing while leaning on that skill that we're very competent in is very small. So there's less chance of things going wrong. So generally that'll yield a much better result than just, you know, going balls out and trying to keep up with the super squad guys. Cause sometimes you just can't do it and you just got to shoot your match and let them give up points. Yeah. Somebody just, sometimes just sitting back and letting them hang themselves is enough or it's, it, it's very helpful. It, so, I mean, that's, that's a huge portion. I mean, I, I literally, and somebody's going to fact check me like, Oh no, you won one stage, but I'm like 99% sure that I won a national championship years ago without winning a single stage. And really, so I clearly wasn't the best shooter on any course of fire, but I was the most consistent shooter start to finish. And I didn't give up as many points as everybody else. Everyone else had some major catastrophic failure, either in their equipment or like on their mental side where they made a big mistake and it cost them a lot of points. And I, ended up winning the match because I got lucky that they failed, not necessarily because I was that good, but I was good enough to leave myself in a position where I could take advantage of them making a mistake. Cool. Yeah. I'm seeing that happen a few times in d- different matches. The the winner of a, a division or the match doesn't have any, any stage wins. You don't think you wouldn't think that would happen at the higher, higher level, but yeah. So at nationals is very, very rare. And if it happens at nationals, there's like a huge uh, disparity of talent. Like if, if there's one guy in the division who wins every single stage, like he didn't have anybody he was competing against that, that could beat him. So he didn't have a high level of competition to fight against. Um, and I really feel that the national should be like the best shooters shooting each division. And that's kind of why I have a hard time with, you know, matches that combine all the divisions or something like that, or they've got like four or five, six divisions because that thins out the talent pool. There are only so many really high level shooters. And if you've got, you know, 30 top level guys and you've got one division, like that's a fight, right? Like you got 30 guys going against each other. But if you got 30 guys in three divisions, now it's only 10 and it just gets cut down from there. So I like the standalone style because you've got so many high level competitors shooting against each other. And I think that elevates everybody's skill level and like puts extra pressure. It just makes it a cooler match, a cooler experience because it's more meaningful when you 
compete against and beat, or even if they beat you against high level competition rather than just, you know, a gimme win because you were the only good shooter there. Yeah. 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 Plus it's how we keep a uh, single stack alive. <laughs> <laughs> single stacks, God's division, man. Why you guys say that? America. <laughs> Two world wars. <laughs> hey, uh, all right. So, um, do you teach classes with you? From what you're sound, telling us your schedule, I don't see how you'd have time. Yeah. So before I, I don't have time right now. Um, I feel like I'm in a good place to, to convey information in a way that makes sense to people. Like, I feel like I'd be a really good instructor now, but unfortunately I've just got so many other things going on. I don't have time. Um, and I, I've got some really important stuff that, that really takes a lot more time away from like time I would otherwise have to do instruction and stuff. But in the past, I've really shied away from instruction and I've done it for a couple of groups that, that really, really, really wanted me to do it for them just because they, like, I got along well with the group. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically, uh, it's the O-Shoot group out of California. Uh, so Bart Del Rio is kind of like the ringleader of the guys, but it's a bunch of really great people. And they kind of invited me into their family and talked me into teaching a class for them a couple of times. And it was a great experience. And it basically taught me that I couldn't convey information effectively. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and that i wasn't a good instructor at the time and so since then i people ask me to teach them or do classes or do one-on-one or whatever it is and like i'll i'll like nicely kind of like get out of it or or not do it because i don't i never felt like i could convey the imp- like i knew what they needed to do like i knew how or what they needed to do and how i get better but i didn't know how to convey the information effectively and I think that's more important than knowing what to convey, but the ability to convey the information in a way someone can, oh, excuse me, the ability to convey the information in a way someone can understand and actually absorb that information is way more critical than any kind of, you know, like small element or like a particular, like the way you press the trigger perfectly from this angle. Like that's a much less important thing than conveying a, a larger concept in a way they can understand to, to anybody that wants to get better. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's it. Um, we're going to move on to the list of questions. Rob would call that instructing versus teaching. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually had a long conversation yesterday with Robbie, uh, about some high level instruction, like, I guess you could call like a, a a teaching philosophy or, um, figuring out a way to convey like the highest understanding of one particular topic, like figuring out a way to teach somebody to be in the zone and to be able to control and like decide to enter the zone or have their Zen like state, which is literally just a, uh, a complete focus on what you're doing is basically all Zen is, is a, a, a razor focus, all of your attention on one thing. Um, and then, you are allow your subconscious mind to fill in everything else. All right. So your razor focused on your brunt sight or whatever, and you're not, fo- you're not consciously focusing on anything else. You're letting your, um, your subconscious mind fill in the gaps everywhere else for you. So you can focus on what you need to. And that, that is a super hard point to convey to anyone, let alone in the shooting world. So yeah. like we were trying to figure out how best to communicate that. 
but Robbie is by far and away the best communicator when it comes to that. Cause he understands where they need to go to shoot at the highest level. And he's the only person that I know right now that can, that can teach someone to do that. I don't know of anyone. And I, I know other people that use that technique or I, I, they would have to use the technique to shoot as well as they do. They might not know they do it, but that's what they do. Um, but Robbie's the only person that I know can actually convey that information to a student. And this isn't a marketing thing for Rob Latham, but I mean, <laughs> he's good at what he does. <laughs> yeah. Hmm, that's All interesting. Right. That is very interesting. Uh, all right, so we're going to move on to the listener questions. Um, we've uh, we've taken up enough of your time, so we're going to try to move through these. You can you can answer these as um, in depth or as uh, you can do yes or no, however you want to do it. But I'm just going to like short. I really like short, you know, concise answers. So all right, I'll try. All right. <laughs> do you like shooting polymer guns or would you rather shoot a steel gun? Uh, it depends what division I'm shooting it in. If I'm shooting carry optics or production, I've really come to enjoy the polymer gun, uh, just because I'm able to get a balance that works really well as far as control the gun has over the recoil. So I don't have to work very hard to do that, but also not so heavy that I have to use extra energy to move it from target to target or my draw is super slow because the gun weighs four pounds or something ridiculous. Uh, so the polymer frame is like a good mid weight and there are ways to add a little bit more weight. Just if you want, like you can put like a tungsten guy rod in or something like that. Um, but Canix got a lot of really cool stuff, you know, in the fire. So I mean, people aren't going to be disappointed. Okay, that 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 hits us on another question. But if I were to shoot open division, I would shoot uh, some kind of steel frame gun for sure. Yeah, if I was shooting mate. If I was shooting major limited division, uh, I would want a steel frame gun for sure because the recoil is so violent in a polymer frame gun. The steel frame gun with the extra weight makes sense but it's to absorb the recoil of that like high power round 170, 175 power factor. Nipsec is pretty standard. 130 power factor ammo really isn't hard to control. If you know what you're doing. Have you ever felt that you've plateaued? If so, how did you get past that? Oh yeah. Uh, a couple times, you know, once or twice, I kind of like took a, a month or two break just to kind of recoup and, Sometimes you're doing something so frequently that you get burned out a little bit, but I'm really fortunate in that I, I really enjoy shooting. So, you know, especially now, I mean, just like going to a match is kind of second nature and it's something I really enjoy doing. So, um, right now I definitely don't feel burned out. And right now I feel like maybe three or four years ago, maybe I had a plateau phase where I thought I had, you know, reached as good as I was going to go. And like, I was struggling, I couldn't get much better. And then Canic happened and it gave me the opportunity to pursue production and carry optics more. And while that's not what I was used to, cause I usually I shoot, um, limited major or back then I did. And it's been a lot of fun shooting the Canic in minor, both in production and carry optics. So, that's it kind of kept me interested and like wanting to push more. So I feel like I'm always able to get better for sure. I'm really anxious to hear this one. Um, can I have your 2011s? I feel like this person probably knows you. Um, what was the name? Uh, let me, let me, let me go back to Instagram. Uh, let me ask you another question while we're, while I'm looking for this. 
we, we, this is kind of, we, we started kind of asking this question every time as a joke. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad question, but people put a little bit more stock in this that need, that it's needed. Um, but what recoil, uh, weight spring do you use? <laughs> <laughs> so you're referring specifically to on mechanic. Yeah. And that was not asked by me. That question was not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, Jason. Yeah, right. I would I would encourage people if they're talking about from a Canic perspective specifically, I would direct you to the Canic Fanatic Facebook page, and I actually posted a really good, I felt, uh, uh, an explanation of why the recoil and striker springs are what they are. So, like the concept behind it, so people can understand the purpose behind it. Rather than just saying, oh, man, the recoil spring's so heavy, my, my really light ammo won't cycle the gun. And right now, I mean, if you load your own ammo to like 125 power factor, chances are that it's not going to cycle a recoil spring that's designed around NATO 9mm. Because that's some powerful, powerful ammo. Um, so, yeah, chances are you're going to want to change your recoil spring to, to work around that. Now, with that said, like I said earlier, Canik's got some interesting stuff coming out that people okay. will be excited about. But to answer your question directly, right now I'm running a 13-pound recoil spring with the, the W74 tungsten guide rod. All right. I may have Did you to, take notes, Jason? Did you write that down? I may have to look that up because that's not what I'm running right now. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Give it yeah. give it a shot. What are you running? Uh, I'm running a um a competitor's guide rod with a uh-huh. 15 pound uh, flat wire 1911 spring. Yep. Interesting. I also shot really hot ammo all year. I shot like 140 power factor ammo all year. Really? Yeah. I mean, I get that. Yeah, I would definitely, at least right now, we've got, like I said, some interesting stuff coming out. But if you wanted to experiment with like the W74 tungsten guide rod to add a little bit weight to the barrel or to the front end of the gun, um, and I'm running the Wolf Commander 13 pound, but a 14 pound will work as well. Um, What you want to do is you want to make sure the gun cycles 100% when. You have a round in the chamber and your mag is totally topped off and full, right? So when it's got the max resistance um, and the gun has to struggle the most because you've got that round pushing up on the bottom of the slide, you've got all these forces working against the gun cycling. You need to make sure the gun works every time in that scenario with your ammo. So whatever that is for you, like that's how you want to make sure that you're good to go. And obviously you want it to hold it in the battery really positively like you don't want it to be right on the edge with that recoil or the striker spring balance. Like you want the recoil spring to overpower the striker spring, not to a crazy degree, but to like to a Enough. very positive. Yeah. yeah. You don't want it to fall out of battery. Like if you push it out of battery, you want it to pop itself right back in. You don't want to have to help it forward. So that's just something to be aware of. Um, but Canik's got some very exciting stuff from the factory coming in the first half of next year. So hopefully we can figure this out. Cool. Um, I can't find who asked that question about the 2011s. That's all right. So I feel I know the answer. But, yeah, uh, I've got some really nice 2011s, so the answer is no. <laughs> uh, my wife Jessica really likes shooting them, so. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, it, it is fun. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough to have. Uh, I mean, my, my wife enjoys shooting as much as I do. So when she has a chance to come with. And whether it's a national, like she shot limited or she shot limited nationals for USPSA this year um, and watched me shoot production nationals. So 
she watched me for the first half of the back-to-back match. And then we shot together for limited slash open. And it's just super fun to be able to travel and shoot and have my wife there. Uh, not only supporting me, but also competing as well. So it's, I'm pretty lucky. I'm a pretty lucky guy. When you, when you shoot with Jessica, how much of your match has to be spent like calming her down if she gets mad at it, like somebody or mad at herself or <laughs> something like that? Uh, that's a great question, but it, it could also get really personal. So I don't know how, how much, I want to <laughs> um, but no, Jessica really knows what she's doing and it used to be tough to shoot with her just cause I would try and help her without her asking for help. Oh. <laughs> She's very much the personality who wants to figure it out on her own. And if she wants help, she'll ask for it. Right. Because like she, she cares enough to actually understand what's going on. So she's not like the helpless, you know, yeah, yeah. bunny that's, you know, wandering around like, Oh man, I can't, you know, take apart my own gun. She literally stones her own hammer and sear and gets her triggers on her 1911s to break how she wants them to break. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's impressive yeah i don't do that <laughs> yeah that's what uh gunsmiths are for yeah that's right we just sent ours to jeremy so jeremy had a jeremy and jeff had a good story uh about um it, it, your wife they mentioned your wife she she had to suffer i think the same thing for at least a little bit so they at talladega booked a hotel room <laughs> and i think it was really bad and i think they saw your wife as she was leaving um, the hotel and basically canceled her reservation. If I understand well, it correctly, that's well, correct. I didn't run in. We didn't run into her at the hotel, but okay. Je- okay. First of all, Jeff booked the hotel. It It is a hundred percent Jeff's fault, but we are sitting. Which one did you go with? Was it the holiday Inn express or the super eight? No, we were at the super eight. The one that, yeah, we were there and we checked into it and I get on a face. We, and it like, we go in, it's like, it's bad. And I get on Facebook, and like the first post I see is that Jessica had previously been in that Super 8 earlier in the day, and I believe she went to a couple different rooms, and then she left, like went to a different, got a new hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So instead of talking negatively about something, I'll talk positively about something else. Um, (laughs) uh, It's something I've learned recently. Uh, It's got me in a little trouble, and, uh, you know, but I've learned. (laughs) Because, I mean, we all make mistakes. But I would say um, you definitely want to stay in Anniston, Oxford, not Talladega. If you're, yeah. sta- if you're, if you're going to the Talladega Shooting Center um, for, say, the Steel Challenge next year or any of the USPSA Nationals, definitely stay in, in Anniston, Oxford. Because the hotels are way better. And they've got a lot of really nice uh, restaurants and stuff like that as well. So, and it's no farther away than Talladega is from the range. So definitely stay in Anniston, Oxford for nationals next year. Note to self. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good hint for people. Uh, yeah. Nobody mentioned it. Really? When, when we were, nobody mentioned ahead it. of time. No, we had no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if Jeff had looked at any sort of reviews on that hotel, he probably would have had an idea that yeah maybe I shouldn't book this hotel, but he didn't look at the reviews. So <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm I'm guilty of that too. My wife was there for the single stack nationals uh, that I wasn't able to attend this year, and she told me the story about her horrible experience in Talladega, and she said 
book a hotel in Anniston, Oxford. Don't book a hotel in Talladega. And my, me and my uh, infinite wisdom decided to ignore what Jessica said and book a hotel in Talladega anyway. So I was at the top of the hill in the Holiday Inn Express. And it is no better than the Super 8. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Well, maybe a little better, but not by much. Yeah, Super 8 seemed to be pretty... Well, let, let's, nah, I'll, there, nah. Yeah, well... It was a special kind of awesome. Yeah, I saw Jessica's videos. <laughs> it's awesome. My, uh, my wife didn't like it either, being Jeremy. He was, he was real whiny about it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what uh, you're going to be bringing back to your home once you sleep in a place like that, that's for sure. <laughs> no, you don't. No idea. But once again, for the audience, next year for Steel Challenge World Shoot and for the USPSA Nationals in Talladega, Alabama, you want to stay at Anniston, Oxford, any hotel there, not <laughs> Talladega. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> And the Popeyes, we were going to stop and get Popeyes too, and it didn't even open until like ten thirty. Yeah, what were you going to do? Eat chicken at eight in the morning? Yeah, yeah, we're going to get a chicken biscuit. We couldn't get a chicken biscuit before a match. Um, Popeyes always opens at ten thirty. That's ridiculous. I only know that because Popeyes is one of my favorite uh, chicken restaurants in the world. <laughs> so uh -huh. they've got the better chicken sandwich. Oh, then Chick Fil A. Yeah. Uh, it depends on your mood. They're both really, really good. They are good. That's the politically yeah. correct way to respond to that question. I prefer the, the Popeye's sandwich. That, mm. Yeah, that Popeye's one okay. is good. <laughs> the, the spicy one. It's a regular. Yeah. You got to yeah. get the spicy yeah. Popeye's. The regular one's no good. Right. Yeah, spicy is the only way to go either place. But Chick-fil-A is much, is very consistent. Like you go to any yes. Chick-fil-A and you get like the same sandwich. My experience with Popeye's is if you get a good Popeye's, then their chi their spicy chicken sandwich is way superior but there's some bad Popeyes out there, and it's not as good as the Chick Fil A. So it's just you gotta you gotta get a good Popeyes. Do you remember if there was a Golden Corral somewhere in uh, the Talladega area? Because I feel like that would be a restaurant that that they would have, and it would probably not be very good either. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably one of the best finest restaurants in Talladega if they have it. <laughs> I have no doubt. I want so bad to, to use my uh, my. <laughs> my golden corral joke that's actually robbie's joke that i stole but i don't want to get sued so i'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> all right um that's all the questions we have do you guys have anything yeah i got one all right let's hear it so, all right natural talent oh i wasn't gonna ask it <laughs> well you go ahead you can let's just keep your mouth shut Jason. i'm sorry i'll be quiet <laughs> all right is there such thing as as natural talent what do you think about natural talent Absolutely, yes. And let, let me give you an example. All right. Tiger Woods is arguably the best golfer of all time, right? Yes. Michael Jordan is arguably the best basketball player of all time. Yes. Yes. I Could either of them do what the other person does at the same level? No. So that means no. each person had a natural ability to do a certain sport or tat. Like some, everybody does something really really well and nobody does the same thing really really well so and it could be a sport like you know tiger woods or michael jordan or usain bolt or like somebody that performs at like this crazy high level all the time um and absolutely they have a natural talent associated with that and that is a really good 
um, starting point to be good at something is natural talent. I like it. Good answer. Yeah. 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 Perfect answer. Now, now I'll be honest. If you asked me that same question three weeks ago, I would probably say, eh, you know, hard work, and perseverance. And like, I would kind of mold around it, but I feel like I really understand how, uh, my shooting careers progressed over the years. And I recognize the fact that I had a certain talent to do what I did. And the fact that I enjoyed doing it, let me do it all the time. So I not only was talented at it, but I worked hard and was doing it all the time. And that gave me, and that put me in a really good position to get lucky all the times that I have. If that makes sense. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I like it. These guys are going to beat up on me after, after no, uh, not we at get all. off the, not at all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of it. So, so what's your opinion on it? I'm curious to hear. Oh, so, okay. So, you okay so the 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 podcast is split jeff and i believe in natural talent jason and sasquatch who's not jason sasquatch that works for cz uh they believe that natural talent is not a thing uh so the the podcast is split but we we always try to ask every guest uh what they what they think on natural talent interesting jason's jason's take on it we'll we'll try to be succinct jason's take on it is that and if you have any innate ability that it's it was developed by previous experiences in life. Yes. Outside of physical abilities, outside of Usain Bolt being his just physical makeup, obviously being able to run faster than someone that's five foot three. That I mean, would be considered a natural talent, maybe or that well, and that's that's where the I think the argument is is what is the definition. So um for instance, real quickly, um Tiger Woods is by far the best golfer ever. Uh, I do not believe that it's anything naturally he did. I I would love to hear his and his him and his dad explain it, and then explain um, all the years and hours of practice that they put into it. Um, I feel like that something stuck right in his mind. It clicked due to something, and it wasn't anything natural. It was something that just experience, something that just happened to hack happen. It could have been luck, but something clicked. And they did it right. They practiced right. They continued to grow. Uh, they just did everything correctly. And anything, it was nothing. It was nothing natural about it. That's just my thing. I'm gonna, you can just tell him he's wrong. You can. <laughs> no. So you're half right. And first, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this with uh, I just started a new Instagram account that I haven't actually linked to my name yet, but I'm I'm the the driving force behind it. Uh, it's called B-A-B person. So B-A-B underscore person. And that stands for be a better person. Um, and in that I'm trying to figure out a way to explain (sighs) to everybody how to tap into the zone or their level of like heightened awareness so I encourage everybody to find the, it's brand new. It's got like, you know, eight followers. Right. And I posted one thing. And this one thing is the concept that I need people to understand to then open their minds. So they're able to accept everything else that I need to teach them before I can teach them the actual concept. So they need, it's like a stepping stone that they need to work through before they, they can be ready to absorb the information that I need to convey in order to get that high a level across. And it's something I'm experimenting. And it was almost, 
a challenge to me to like not let myself like not chicken out and be like, oh man, I hope this this is stupid. Right. It's so important. I feel like I with the help of everyone I know can figure out a way to pass that information on to the average guy. And if I can figure out a way to do that, however it evolves, I think that that could be a huge thing for not only us in the shooting sports, but for um, like, it sounds crazy to say it, but literally for like people and the world population, just by able to like tap into like learn a process that everyone can understand to tap into the full potential of their mind. Like if I'm able to do that, it could change the world. So I tagged all the great athletes that I could possibly think of, like Rafael Nadal in tennis and Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Usain Bolt, everybody that I could think of that in their discipline, they like literally the best or somebody that I really respect in that, like Garth Brooks, like super awesome, high level performer, awesome music. Like, and I like him as a person. Like, I think he's a good individual and like, every one of them. And I have Rob Latham and Eric Rappel in there as well, who come on guys like the, like, come on, respond to my, yeah. my, my message. But uh, I feel like if we explore that and, and we're able to do it, it could be something really big. And that's B a B underscore person, be your, be a better person on Instagram. So check it out. And if you like it, and that's something that maybe you get out of, get something out of, share it with your friends and like, help me, Help me figure out if this is something that we can do. Interesting. Cool. I like it. Well, I already follow it. So I've, I've already followed it. I'm dude. Um, so I've read a lot of books recently and, and, uh, you know, uh, peak, um, uh, top dog. There's a uh, one's called bounce. Um, and then there's, you know, and these are all like, there's a couple of them that was involved in tennis and stuff like that and golf. Um, I find it super in that whole aspect of, of that, of just exceeding, uh, excelling, um, super interesting. So I, it's something I'm right now that's, it's very, um, interesting to me. So I've already followed. So anxious to see what you put out. No. So, and it's literally just me working through figuring out exactly what it is and if it's able to be conveyed, conveyed at a level that is easily understood. Right. So you can't overcomplicate something to the point where no one can understand or only some like massively educated person with, you know, all this other experience can understand. But if you can teach somebody who doesn't know anything, how to tap into the full potential of their mind, it literally changes the way they look at the world. And it could be, it could be a pretty big thing if we're able to do it. So that's something I'm trying. So if people want to check it out, be a better person on Instagram and, uh, we'll, Trying, I'll try and be better people. Yeah. It's always a good goal. It's awesome. That's interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Seeing, uh, seeing where that, where that goes. And it might go nowhere, but at least I tried. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say this last thing, something that really helped me out this, this last year. And, um, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I don't want to share stuff anymore and I don't mean to be, but it's like, I feel like, Oh man, this is a secret that's helped me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I, I've done well, I've shot really good and this is my best year. So, so selfish. this is a success for me, but right. I'm like, man, I don't want to share this because I don't want, I don't want to give away the secret. But, uh, one thing that you've said twice that that's kind of stuck with me. Um, I was watching, um, the last dance on Netflix, which is the bull story. And Jordan basically said, he's like, awesome. 
awesome miniseries, by the way. Definitely Very, recommend that. Yes, watch that. And uh, he's like, he's like, if you give it your all, and you, I mean, you just live, breathe, um, live and breathe this, and it still doesn't work out. That's okay. At least you know you gave it your all and you tried. Um, and that right there, I was like, you know what? And I really, I, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I really think that's what helped me the most this year at nationals was, as I said, I'm going out and I'm going to shoot, I'm going to shoot the right, what I think is the right plan. And if I fall on my face, Oh, well, right. Which falling on your face was a real possibility. (laughs) I, I, yeah, it was, (laughs) it's another story. Uh, Trust me. I've, I've wiped out at many a national championship. Um, heck I, I fell and, and, and busted the, the ever loving hell out of myself at the, the world shoot that I won back in 2014, I think it was. Um, and it was a field course and, you know, I was running right to left and like a, in frostproof Florida, the way the range was set up, they had big boulders and I lost my balance and like hit the ground hard. And instead of, and I, I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but looking back on it, like if you watch the video, um, the only thing that happens is like, I I'm on the ground and you can actually hear me say, ow, right. Almost as a joke, like the hell that just happened, right. I'm on the ground and now I got to get up and run over here and keep shooting. Like it never occurred to me that looking back on it, I was in a Zen state. The only thing that I was focused on was what I had to do on that stage, no matter what it was. And the fact that I had such a horrible thing happen, and maintain the focus on the stage all the way to the end was something I can really appreciate that I did now where I couldn't appreciate it earlier. Yeah. That's cool. But Jason, back to your point, as far as not wanting to share information, you see that a lot sometimes on the super squad where somebody like a, somebody has a great stage plan Mm-hmm. and they want to hide that stage plan until they're up, right? So they get the benefit. I've heard of this, yeah. So they, they get the benefit of the more efficient stage plan um, and take advantage of the fact that the other people weren't able to figure that out. Yeah. And it could be because that person, you know, came two days earlier because they're sponsored by, you know, some major gun manufacturer and like they, they can afford to go to a, a range when everyone else is at work. And, you know, scope it out and do all this kind of stuff. And like, it's a legitimate like advantage. They know the lay of the land and they know how they're going to shoot the stage better than everybody else before anyone else even gets there. Um, Now that's an extreme example, but that would be kind of the equivalent of not sharing your stage plan. And that's not to say, make me feel bad. (laughs) That's not to say on the super squad, if you're competing against somebody and you're neck and neck and they ask you how you're going to shoot it, like you, you make up your own mind. Like I'm not going yeah. to think poorly of anybody that decides not to share the state plan. But if I'm in a squad with like regular guys and I'm trying to hide my stage plan, plan from people that just are there to have fun and shoot and, and compete in practical shooting. Cause it's awesome. Right. If I hide my stage plan from them, like I feel like that's a, that detracts from the sport. Part of the cool thing about USPSA and, and the shooting sports in general is it would be like shooting it'd be like playing a round of golf with tiger woods or playing basketball with michael jordan or doing something at a very high level with the best in the sport and i feel like this is the only form of competition where that's possible i can't think of any other one 
No, I mean, the closest thing would maybe be in lucky enough to get on the same course a week before or after or a month or something uh, that they the pros played. But yeah, no, but that's not the same match. And that's actually, yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I want to, like, as far as stage plans, I actually like to talk about it. However, at Nationals, there was a couple times where I was aware that maybe another person on the on the squad uh, didn't, was like, well, look, man, I'm we're kind of competing against each other, and I think this is a better plan, so I don't really want to give you the leg up. This is part of the game, and I was totally, under, I totally understood it, so. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And like I said, I mean, if somebody chooses, if somebody's in direct competition with you and they choose not to share a stage plan with you, that's fine. And that is part of the sport. And at the same time, it's almost a challenge to you because if they were able to figure it out, why couldn't you figure it out? Yeah, exactly. If there's a better way, you should be able to figure it out and you should be able to find the most efficient way to shoot a stage for you. And that could be different than that person, right? Like they could have a certain strength that allows them to do something that you can't and the same for you, right? Like you have an ability to do something maybe someone else can't. So you can lean on that skill to maybe get an advantage. And in that case, like that's, that's just straight. I mean, that's the game. I mean, everyone's Mm -hmm. different. Like we're all shooting the match. It would be like a tall person going to a low position is at a disadvantage. Just like a short person going to a port that they have to stand on their toes to shoot over is at probably a bigger disadvantage because it's like, they're having to deal with that adversity. So everyone just has to try and do the best with what they've got. And everybody's different. So it's going to, there's not a one size fits all in the shooting sport. Everybody's different. So what works for somebody won't necessarily work for somebody else. But I think it's important that people take what they like from people that do stuff at a high level. Like I enjoy Angus, the way that Angus Hobdell moved when I started shooting. I thought was really efficient and it never looked forced, but he was always faster than me when he was moving. And that was despite me being younger and in better shape, right? Somehow he could run faster. And I came to find out that he had, uh, maybe not a background in, but he, he did a lot of fencing. So he came from like a different style of movement. And I, I think that style of movement is really interesting for pistol shooting. Cause you're always ready to either attack or advance or change direction. And that's what we do in USPSA. So I, yeah. I thought that was an interesting thing to bring up. That's very interesting. Niels, we really appreciate you coming on, um, giving up your time. No, no, it's my pleasure. I mean, it's been really good talking with you guys and, uh, I hope you and the listeners have a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Hey, bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> yeah. Bye. There you go. Hey, Niels, thank you, man. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hope you guys have a good night. All right. Bye. See you, man. See ya. Stop recording, damn it.